Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. Good afternoon, everyone. Praise God, it's good to see you. I am standing here highly excited um, by numerous things, but that's just the kind of effect that God can have on one, you know. I'm extremely ecstatic about the fact that we um, had our baptism yesterday. Um, it's actually been the first one for quite a while. We were having them in the first few years, probably once every six months. And then we just had a, a long period um, where it just didn't come together. And um, I know that there, were, there was such a great turnout of support. I know with it being a Saturday, there were probably quite a few people who couldn't make it because of prior commitments. And um, we tried our hardest to get somewhere on a Sunday afternoon, but it just didn't happen. And so, um, you know, we're commanded to baptize those who believe. So we've got to change our expectations sometimes. And so we went for the Saturday. So it was great. And um, it's particularly encouraging for us because as we grow as leaders in the faith, we are learning to appreciate more and more the call of God upon our lives, what it means, and more importantly, how to go about it. You know, we are called to make disciples. And that call is not just for us as leaders, because the intention in that statement was that disciples would be made who go on to make disciples. So that puts the responsibility of discipleship firmly on every single one of us. Make disciples that make disciples that make disciples. And we, as leaders, appreciated, looking back over our journey, that we were so um, lacking in guidance and instruction as to how even to begin to go about that. You know, we would go to church and we would hear messages with regards to our success and how great we were and how blessed we were and how much we could get from God. That was commonplace. And evidently we didn't have a problem with that because that suited our appetite, right? Until we began to read the Bible and realized that actually there's something more going on here than just me getting from God. And so we hungered. And we thirsted for righteousness in the form of equipping and being established. And so as we've come into that place of leadership and responsibility, we know firsthand, having experienced the impact of being in that kind of environment, just how necessary it is for us to call on God with all of our hearts and minds and might to use us to help provide guidance and instruction and equipping in the things of the faith. And so, us having a baptism yesterday was an outworking of our call. 
Our start in the foundation series today is an outworking of our call. And this is another reason why I'm excited. I'm excited because we're able to pour in, contribute, sow into your hearts and lives that which is the intention of God. And I state that categorically, without hesitation. Truly, this is the intention of God for us. And so whether you're a new believer or you're mature in the faith, whether you still need to use the contents page to find your way around the Bible, you've got all 66 book on lock, this is for you. It doesn't matter where you're at because it's important that we become established. And we'll see that there are certain things that will evidence actually where we're at. There are certain things that will reveal where we're really at. And so on that basis, let's give some consideration to the foundation series, which is found in Hebrews 6, verses 1 and 2. Now I'm going to ask, um, as you turn your Bibles there, I've got some handouts. I've got some handouts. Now some of you are probably thinking, man, this sounds a bit deep, you know, handouts. Next thing you're going to tell me that we've got an exam at the end of the series. Well, you never know. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> but the handouts are just simply to help you track with me as we go through the teaching. To help you track with me as we go through the teaching. Feel free to make notes on it. It's yours. And we'd encourage you, especially those of you that took the membership pack, keep hold of it and add it to it. Now, as they're being passed out, let me clarify how this relates to us establishing covenant community here at South London. How this relates to us establishing covenant community, rolling out this, the process of membership. First and foremost, this foundation series is for everyone. It's Bible. This isn't for any select few. This isn't for only, only for those who um, are considering becoming members. This is for everyone. And so what you're going to receive over the next eight weeks is going to be completely applicable to your life. Even if you're just visiting. And I'd encourage you if you're visiting and you're not already committed to a local church, stick with us as we go through this series. The rate of biblical illiteracy among believers is frightening. Among those who profess Jesus Christ as their Lord... The actual levels of understanding the Bible and just basic stuff is actually frightening. And part of that is for, that the reason for that is the environment that we're in where, you know what? If we said that we were going to be watching DVDs every Sunday, we'd probably have to um, knock the walls out, get twice as many cheers, because people are much more stimulated by such things. 
And just part of the transition of the culture that we're in and society and the way people learn, everything's much more visual, much more um, media-oriented and so on. Much more, quote-unquote, entertaining. But sometimes we have to just get down and deal with the nitty-gritty. Now, you're all big people and it's probably been a long time since those days when you regretted having to brush your teeth. (laughs) I remember the days when it was like, oh, it's long. Go ahead to my bed and I've got to brush my teeth. Oh. And you know the ones when you've, you've, you've been napping and you've been dozing and then you're like, oh, I haven't brushed my teeth. It's not exciting. You don't run into the bathroom looking for your favorite toothbrush. Yeah, I can't wait to brush my teeth. It's just one of those necessities of life. If you want to keep your teeth, brush them. A few young people that are still there, you know what? <laughs> Let the Lord apply that as he wills. <laughs> Amen. But at this, there are times when we just need to be able to say, okay, look, you know what? This isn't necessarily going to be exciting and entertaining, but it's something that is a necessity and I'm going to give myself to it. I'm going to get down and deal with this. And so, let us approach God's word like that. Let us be teachable, let us be open as we approach his word. So, the foundation series is for everyone. Not just for those who are desiring to be members, considering being members. As we roll out the process of covenant community and establishing of membership, one of the prerequisites of you being affirmed rubber stamped as a member is that you've completed the foundation series we recognize that we have a responsibility as I mentioned to ensure that you know what everyone's on the same page and it's been according to the goodness of God that we've been able to continue over the years as we have the Lord's been working among us but just like Moses back in the book of Exodus trying to minister to the people of Israel and he was busted. He was messed up because he couldn't deal with it all. In fact, his father-in-law had to step to him and say, Moses, what are you trying to do? Moses, don't be a hero. Get some help. Appoint some guys to share the responsibility with you. Lay hands on them, pray for them, in trusting that God will give them the grace to deal with the issues that they got to deal with, allowing you to deal with the issues that you got to deal with. And so when the elders of Israel were appointed, it was primarily in response to Moses' need so that he could better serve the people and as a knock-on effect to meet the needs of the people more effectively. So we ourselves recognize that this process of defining and that's what we're doing we're defining covenant community we're defining who we are as a body of believers locally here at charter school calvary chapel south london that is primarily for our benefit as leaders it's going to help us 
to more faithfully and effectively fulfill our responsibility. And the byproduct of that is that the needs of the people will be more effectively met. Foundation series is part of that process. And so, if you are considering membership, we're going to ask you to just keep a track of what sessions you've attended. Um, Within the next week or so, whether next Sunday or the Sunday after, we're going to pass out a sheet for you to be able to just tick off what you've done and put your name down so that we can kind of just have, have everything organized, neat and tidy. So you can expect that to take place in the next few weeks. Okay, Hebrews 6, 1 and 2. Everybody there? For those of you who are not, it's on the top of your sheet. Hebrews 6, 1 and 2. Follow with me. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. So it's saying, let's leave the basics behind and go on to perfection or maturity. God's expectation is that we grow, is that we mature, all of us. And so fundamentally, as we go through this series, our hope, desire, intention and expectation is that you will be established in the basics. Some of you are looking at this list and saying, the basics? Well, I couldn't tell you what the Bible says about laying on of hands. Is that when you have like the long prayer lines and you push people over? I, I, I couldn't tell you from a, from a biblical point of view what's going to happen with regards to the resurrection of the dead. What is real repentance? See, these are things that we are to have an understanding of. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you, Lord, for your commitment to us. Lord, having saved us, you are committed to sanctifying us as we yield to the work of your spirit and the ministry of your word in our lives. We pray that you would help us as we sit here right now, Lord, that you would help us to be open, help us to be receptive. Lord, we recognize that we can't understand spiritual truth apart from the work of your spirit turning the lights on in our brains. We're natural people. How can we understand you, the infinite God? And so we're asking, Lord, switch the lights on for us, Lord, today. Help us as we give ourselves to look at the elementary things. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, in Hebrews 5 verse 12, Paul clarifies the necessity for us to give attention to these things. So just a few first verses back, he says this, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, remember, he ain't just writing to leaders, he's writing to a whole congregation of people. He said, although 
by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again. The first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is what? Unskilled in the word of righteousness. For he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Maturity, growing up, solid food and not just milk. You know, I was so greatly encouraged yesterday when at the baptism, there were those who stood up to testify. Now again, we recognize that some have committed their life to the Lord, you know, even some years before yesterday. But one of the blessed things was being able to hear people stand up and testify in a way that was consistent with truth. Sharing verses of scripture, even from memory. <laughs> Dean, who is it that Dean corrected? I ain't even going to hold him up. He said, John 11, 25. And then he said, and he waited. He was, he was trying to clarify in his mind. You could see this quotation that he was about to draw for. And so I was trying to help him. And he was like, no, <laughs> it's not that. <laughs> Praise God. We're to be people of the book. We're to be people of the word. And it is that that directly contributes to our maturity. Now, what we're going to look at today is the Bible, the book, the word. Why should we be people of the book? I mean, what's so special about this book? Is this really the word of God? Hmm. So what if it is? Well, let's consider that today. As you see from your sheets, the series goes on. The next step, repentance. Sin in principle and practice. Real repentance. What is real repentance? Just being sorry? Is that real repentance? Hmm. Well, faith. Session three. In what? Or who? I mean, faith, if you've just got faith, that's enough, isn't it? Why is faith necessary? Baptisms, notice it's got a plural. Hey, isn't there just one? Why has it got a plural? What, why and how? So many people today don't understand baptism. Confused. Baptism of the Holy Spirit, baptism in water, baptism of fire. <laughs> Baptisms. What's it all about? Laying on of hands. I mean, why does anyone want to put their hands on me anyway? I need my personal space, my. Put your hands on me. 
resurrection. This life isn't all there is. Or is it? Eternal judgment. <laughs> Payback. How does that work? What's that going to look like? And then the final session will be a session on our DNA as a church. Every church has their DNA. Every local assembly, every local fellowship of believers has their DNA. And so we'll be able to clarify our vision and values, who we are, what we think, and how we function. Amen? That's the series to come. So today, the Bible, is it the word of God? Now you'll be able to follow the outline on the other half of the sheet. 2.1. The Bible. Now we've said that we're basing this series on Hebrews 6, 1 and 2. But there's no reference in Hebrews 6, 1 and 2 to the Bible, is there? Can you see anywhere in that list of basics that talks about the Bible or the word of God or anything of that nature? Is it mentioned there? No. It's not. So why would we want to start with the Bible if it ain't there in the verses? Well, the Bible, that term or the word of God might not be in those verses, but those verses are in the Bible. And so if we're going to look at these verses, why should we even give them attention in the first place? Well, this is what we're going to establish today. Is the Bible the word of God? Amen. Well, why do we believe the Bible to be the word of God? First and foremost, we assume that there is a God. To ask if the Bible is the word of God, we assume that there is a God. How do we know that there is a God? Well, let me give you the first point as to how we know there is a God. Self-evident truth. When we look at Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, it starts with, in the beginning, God. No explanation, no clarification, no justification, just a declaration. In the beginning, God. And you see, God has worked in such a way that every individual knows that there is a God. It don't matter if you call yourself atheist, agnostic, um, gnostic, whatever you want to call yourself, it really doesn't matter to God. Because he knows that you know there is a God. Apart from the Bible, apart from the word, you know that there is a God. We know personally that there is a God. In Romans 1, 19 and 20, it says this. Because what we may... So because what may be known of God 
is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes or characteristics are clearly seen. Being understood by the things that are made. Even his eternal power and Godhead. So that they are without excuse. So straight away we see that whoever the individual is and whatever their point of view is, God says, I have given them an inward witness that I exist. They know that I am there. There are various ways. We see through creation it states. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible characteristics are clearly seen. So through the works of creation, God has exhibited the fact that he exists. It would be completely unreasonable of me to suggest that this building with lights, projector, Glass, curtains hanging to block out light and wooden floors suited to walking on, not rocky and so on. That the chairs that I hear designed ergonomically to facilitate our need for seating. That all of this just came about by accident. That the builders one day just let off a huge explosion and this was what remained. You would have me locked up. You'd take me down the road, not even to Kings, but to Maudsley. And you'd have me sectioned. Because it's unreasonable to think that. And yet when we see the order and the design in creation, it is the height of human audacity to say that there is no designer or creator. The human eye is more complex the most, than the most powerful computer chip. Forty million nerve endings. Now I don't know what the highest resolution is these days of screens. Sixteen megapixels higher. Well, one. One, all right, all right, I'll take your word for it. Now, I, I don't know how many of you saw Avatar. How many of you saw it in 3D? All right, so you sat down and you had the 3D. I, I, when I went to see Avatar in 3D, right, I thought we was going to get them little cardboard. I mean, back in the, like, show my age. You know, you know, bruv, you know, them little cardboard 3D glasses that hurt your nose bridge. And they don't stay on. And they got them little flimsy pieces of plastic that you used to use in primary school. <laughs> you remember that? Yeah? I remember when Channel 4 first piloted 3D programming back in the day. And I, I didn't get none of the 3D glasses. And I had two of the sheets from primary school <laughs> in front of my eyes like that. <laughs> trying to watch 3D. I thought it was going to be some archaic technology like that. And they had these big plush Joe Knighty glasses. Solid lenses. I was like, wow, things have moved on. And no doubt, you know, it added to the experience. 
whatever you thought of the film, I ain't going to get into that. Whatever you thought of the film, it added to the experience, right? It had depth and dimension that you don't ordinarily experience in a cinema. It had a greater likeness to real life. But was it real life? Was the visual impact the same as sitting down, looking at one another across the room? No. Because even in our best attempts, we do not have the power to regenerate reality. And yet we're going to look at creation and say there's no God. That's audacity. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. And so, there we have a reason. We see also socially evidence of God's existence. Let's consider People say there's no God, and as a result, they are forced to say there is no absolute right and wrong. If there is no ultimate accountability, then who's to say what's right and what's wrong? We just take a vote, right? And it doesn't matter if it's a small majority, the biggest crowd wins. But there are people that oppose your vote. There are people, it was only 51%. 49% of the people don't agree with you, don't matter. The majority have spoken. But 49% of the people think it's wrong, it don't matter. These things lead to uprisings and rebellion. But the notion of law is such that that in itself shows us that there's a God. There is no reason for anyone to hold to a common law if there is no absolute truth. Now, I know we've got a few driving instructors in the building. And you don't have to be a driving instructor to work out what would happen if people did not observe the law of the road. I mean, it's a one-way street. But who cares? The signs say one way, and we all drive in one way thinking it's safe. We're not expecting a car to come out the side road and turn into our path. What kind of road experience would we have if that's how people function, just ignoring the law? It's entirely reasonable to have law, right? I mean, all we'd be left with is road rage on acid. I said to um, my daughter, she's learning to drive. I said, look, one of the things that you have in your advantage, as nervous as you are when you get behind that wheel, as overly cautious as you are, thinking that you're going to crash and so on, I said, you have a very powerful thing working in your advantage. It is something that actually guards the behavior of other road users, helping to ensure your safety. And it's the law. It's the law. The common sense of right and wrong comes from the light of the law 
within the human conscience. Romans 1.19 Because what may be known of God is manifest where? In them. God has shown it to them. Every individual has a conscience. In John 1.9 it says this. Speaking of Jesus being the light of the world. says that was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. Now there are very many views on what this means in practice. But there is a very strong view that this refers to the human conscience. That light inside every heart that helps us to recognize right and wrong. This is further evidence of an of a almighty God who has sown in our hearts the knowledge of absolute truth. Here's another one. Maybe one that is not so often talked about and maybe one you wouldn't expect. Love. The very experience of love among people is further evidence that there is a God. You see, there's no scientific explanation or justification for the existence and experience of love. The evolutionist cannot give you a rational theory to explain love and why it exists. That commitment, one person to another, to the exception of all others, excluding all others. Now in Ephesians 5.31, it says this of marriage. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 32. This is a great mystery. A lie? <laughs> All the married people said, amen. It's a great mystery. Still trying to work it out. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Now, the scripture says that God is love. And we see in the Bible that the church, that's us as believers, are the unique object of God's love. God's love is most fully realized and recognized in terms of his relationship with his bride, the church. That's us. And the coming together of one man and one woman, notice it doesn't say Christian man and Christian woman. Unbelievers get married as well and enjoy the blessing and benefit of the institution under common grace. The union of a man and a woman in wholehearted, committed love is a reflection and a testimony to the God of love who loves his people in a unique and special way. And so, we see three things right there 
that testify to the existence of God. The conscience, creation, law, and love. Those four things, right? So there is a God. Now, you may be visiting today and never considered it in that way. And I'd encourage you to give it further consideration, especially as we move on considering the Bible. With there being a God, it is completely reasonable to expect that he would make himself known. So there's a God. What is he like? You see, creation tells us that there is a God, but it doesn't help us to know him personally. We are aware of his being. And all of the things that I mentioned before, they're they're a witness to the fact that there is a God, but how can we know him? Here's an important point. We do not rely on what we can know about God. We do not rely and we are not to rely on what we can know about God. It's not me trying to work God out according to my own understanding. Like those guys in that story who were blindfolded and the four of them were feeling this object in front of them. And as they were there feeling, one said, you know what I feel this, this thing is? It's, it's a tree trunk. Because it's big and it's round and it's rough. And the other one said, what are you talking about? This, this, is, like a, this is a brick wall. Because it's high and it's wide and it's solid. The other one said, I don't know what you guys are talking about because I would swear this is a fire hose. It's long and it's flexible. The fourth one said, hmm. But what I've got over here is is flappy and, and it's malleable. I can turn it and bend it and what they were describing what were they describing thank you I know you guys have heard it before thank you for not spoiling my thunder (laughs) it was an elephant one was feeling the leg thinking it was a tree trunk another one was feeling the, the elephant's trunk thinking it was a hose the other one felt the elephant's side thinking it was a big wall The other one was feeling the elephant's ear. They were all trying to establish the identity of a common object. But limited by their own experience and coming up with something different. And that's what happens when we try and work out God. In our own minds, according to our own reasoning and reckoning. We come up with a distorted, inaccurate erroneous picture and so rather than rely on what we can know about God what should we do we are to only rely on what he has revealed of himself there is a God 
He is alive. And he is capable of communication. And so if there is a creator, it is absolutely reasonable that he would communicate with his creation who he is. And so that's where we look at God's revealed truth, the Bible. God's revealed truth, the Bible. What is the Bible? The word Bible comes from the Greek biblos, which means the book. The book. And in fact, the Bible is more than just the book. It is the book of books. Not only is it the book that outdoes all other books, but within itself, its internal structure is that it is made up of books. The book of books has two sections, Old Testament and New Testament, 39 in the old, 27 in the new, 66 in total. When was it written? It was written over a period of 1500 years, during which time God progressively revealed himself. It was written on three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. And God used a multitude of different people from different social backgrounds. There were 40 writers. Some were kings. One was a doctor, fisherman, farmer, a taxman, a butler, military general. And yet we see it has one harmonious message. One harmonious message. And it is the message of redemption. It is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now you might say, but hold on, isn't that just New Testament? Uh Uh-uh. You see, the gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. And in Eden, we see a prototype of the kingdom. But then sin comes and destroys the picture. And from that point, at the beginning of creation, we then see God revealing himself and his plan of redemption, which is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And that's why Jesus is at the center of the Bible, just as he is at the center of history. It is harmonious. There are many who claim that the Bible has inconsistencies. And yet, the Bible still remains to be the biggest selling item in history. Not even Michael Jackson, the late, and some would say great, with all of these albums, 50 million of them, has outsold the Bible. 
In Hebrews 1.1 1, 1, it says, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. He has in these last days spoken to us by his son. You see, the book is all about Jesus, basically. It's all about Jesus and salvation through him that we might become citizens of God's kingdom. What that kingdom looks like and how we're to function in it. This is the unified message of the scripture. There is no other book like that. Now, why would we say that the Bible is God's word? Why, why would we be convinced of that? Why would we say that the, what the Bible says of Jesus is true? Well, we recognize that the Bible scripture is revealed truth. And I say Bible scripture because there are other books claimed to be scripture. Other books claimed to be of God. But we recognize the Bible to be unique because of two types of evidence. The internal evidence and the external evidence. So let's put the Bible on trial and consider the evidence. Someone walks in. How many remember? Um, uh, I saw some debate the other day. Someone was having about the best film. <laughs> best film. Avatar's whack. Best film ever. Coming to America. <laughs> now I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that's what they said. And in the film, we see a prince <laughs> come to America, attempting to live in disguise, attempting to be what he's not. We see a similar theme in The Prince and the Pauper, the Disney classic. And yet we recognize that the Bible is not appearing to be something that it's not. It's not appearing to be something that it's not. We see that with regards to the evidence inside it, that's the first place to start. What does it say about itself? Somebody might want to call me a king. They might want to call me a prince. But is that what I'm calling myself? Because you know, if I'm calling myself that, you're going to want to see some back at it. You're going to want to see some evidence. Some proof of that. What does the Bible say about itself? In Deuteronomy 18.18, 18, God said this to Moses, the great prophet. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. This is God speaking to Moses. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. And so we see from the outset, God appointed a person to be his spokesman. And how do we know that Moses was qualified? Because the multitude saw Moses come down from the mountain, face glowing, tablets in hand. 
whilst they had given up hope and started partying and raving. He came from the very presence of God and there was physical evidence to support that. And so everyone accepted the authority of Moses during his life and times. No one questioned whether or not Moses knew God. No one questioned whether or not Moses was speaking on behalf of God. Was Moses speaking God's words? Yes, he was. And from that point, God began a succession of prophets. Individuals who he identified and validated as his spokespeople who would speak on his behalf. And he confirmed their appointment by doing physical things. Whether it be healing, whether it be miracles, making the sun stand still, causing it not to rain. The prophets of God were endorsed by God before all the people by literal, physical, supernatural acts. That continued up until Malachi, 435 years before Jesus. And at that point, the Jewish people, God's chosen people of that time, they closed what they called the canon, the authorized books. And that's how we have our Old Testament. They reckon that, they recognize after the time of Malachi, God had stopped speaking through the prophets. There weren't no new books to add, even though new books were written. Any of you heard of the book of Judith? Not my wife, Judith. She likes to tell me she's a prophet. I say, yeah, you're a false one. <laughs> but there's a book of Judith. There's a, there's a book of Tobit and Ezra's. All right, I, know, I know you heard of this one, Maccabees. Listen, when I was growing up, you know, I was scared of Maccabees. Now, we had a Bible in our house, and, it was, and on the cover it said, The Bible and Apocrypha. Apocrypha, you know. Woo. And when I was growing up, my cousin used to say to me, Don't trouble that, you know. That's some... Um, Dark, you mustn't look in that book, you know. That's some dark book, you know. Just look at the name, Apocrypha. And you know what? I never did. I was scared. I said, what's in there? Is there a book of Maccabees in there, you know? Some ungodly things in there. Now, I later learned that it's not actually that scary. Basically, the Apocrypha are the books that were written in between the Old and the New Testament. So those, those books that I've mentioned, 1 and 2 Maccabees, Tobit, Ezra, and so on and so forth. These were just historical books written among the Jewish people. So they're history books. Like you might read about Caesar, King Henry VIII, Christopher Columbus, Mary Seacole, whoever. You read history, they're history books. But they're not the word of God. 
Although there are those who have taken them to be the word of God and claim them to be the word of God, they're not inspired. And the Jews knew that and they left them out. And so we recognize that the Old Testament was established, recognized and accepted as the word of the living God. He's communicated to people and it's been captured here in these words. Likewise, the New Testament, starting with the coming of the great prophet, the greatest prophet, the one who Moses was a, just a foreshadow. He was just an example, a prototype of this great prophet who was to come, Jesus Christ. It's the best and right place to start. We see that Jesus is the central feature of the New Testament. We see the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, speaking about his life and times, his death and resurrection, his teachings, and his mighty works. We see the book of Acts. It says Acts of the Apostles, but basically it's the continued Acts of the Lord through the Apostles. It's the continuation of Jesus' ministry through his church. We see the Epistles. Always have to be careful how we say that one. The epistles, the letters that are explanations of what Jesus was talking about. So it's all focused on Jesus. We have the revelation which speaks about his return, his second coming. Jesus said this in John 6, 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. See, Jesus identified the fact that he wasn't just talking long talk. He's talking something here that is different to what other people are talking. His words are spirit and life. He goes on to say this in John 14:10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority. I'm not just making this stuff up. This is of the Father, God. But the Father who dwells in me does the works. That's why in the letters, they went on to say things like this. Hebrews 4.12 For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. And is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. This ain't just words on a page. This thing gets us exposed, naked, open before God. Identifying that which is spirit and soul, that which is just fleshly and carnal. In fact, we see that when it comes to the apostles, those who were appointed by Jesus to explain his life and teachings and works. They recognized that they were right in scripture. One example among many. 
In 2 Peter 3, 16, we see Peter called Paul's teachings scripture. 2 Peter 3, 15. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scriptures. Now, the word scripture, graphe in Greek, it's used over 51 times in the New Testament and it was always a reference, a direct reference to the word of God. Particularly the Old Testament. And so we see Peter claiming Paul's writings to be scripture. All these things are evidence that what we're dealing with is actually the word of God. One other sure type of evidence. Prophecy. We see God in Isaiah... Look through, I just loved the chapters 40 through 44. Multitude of quotations, but we see God bragging on, the, on, on, on his majesty, on his greatness and on his power. Don't you know that I'm God? There ain't no other God like me with your wooden handmade idols. They're deaf and dumb. They can't do nothing. You Don't you know that I'm God? Oh, I love it. Who is like the Lord? No one, no way, no way, no how. God is great. And he says, listen, you know what? I'm God. And you know one of the things that distinguishes me about being God? I tell you something and it happens. I, not only do I tell you something and it happens, but I tell you long before it happens. And then it comes to pass. Because that's me. I'm God. And at the time in Isaiah when God was saying this, he was saying it in the context of the prediction of someone who would come and release the children of Israel from captivity. And he named him hundreds of years before he was born. His name was Cyrus. And God says, you know what, I'm going to raise up this dude called Cyrus and he's going to let your people out and you're going to know that I'm God. And so said, hundreds of years later, Cyrus, no, an unbeliever, he was not a Jew, he was not from the covenant people of God, he let the people of God go from captivity. Prophecy, Psalm 22, 700 years before Christ, 400 years before crucifixion was invented, gives you a picture of the Messiah suffering. Describing the very effects and characteristics of crucifixion before crucifixion was even invented. 400 years before. Isaiah 53, the same thing. There are multitudes. The book of Daniel, right? The prophecy in the book of Daniel is so accurate. And not only was it so accurate, it was so accurately fulfilled that Bible scholars look back and say there must have been two Daniels. 
There was one who wrote down the prophecy and then there was one who later looked at the fulfillment and then adjusted it to suit the fulfillment. Because there's no way that one guy hundreds of years before the events could have been so accurate. That's how accurate the prophecies in Daniel. And it's not just concerning Israel. Alexander the Great was prophesied in the book of Daniel. Are we dealing with the word of God or what? External evidence. All right, so the Bible makes all these claims about itself. But what about how that stands up in life? How does that stand up against the testing of a life? Science. Hey. The thing that they like to claim to be the great Bible killer. Science. It was um, Nietzsche who claimed, the philosopher who claimed that God is dead. There ain't no God. And yet he died a lunatic. There are many who are learned in their own wisdom thinking that they have the answer that silences the pages of scripture. But look at this. Let me give you three scientific facts that were evidenced in the Bible before humanity understood the principle. It was only during the time of the Greeks only during the time of the Greeks, which was a few hundred years before Christ, that they began to have the concept that the world was round. And even until about 300 years ago, people still thought that the earth was flat. They said, don't go sailing off into the horizon, you're going to fall off the edge of the earth. In fact, in Eastern religions, they believed that there were four elephants that that were the, 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 the burden bearers of the world. And the world was like a flat table sitting on the back of these four elephants. But listen to what the Bible says in Job 26 verse 7. That God sits above the circle of the earth. He sits above the circle of the earth. All right. In Hebrews 11.3, it tells us that creation is made from that which is unseen. Creation is made from that which is unseen. Now, you have to remember, to a scientist who has no concept of God, they don't understand or care about a statement like that until the 19th century. When they realized that all things are made of tiny particles that are invisible to the human eye it was then that they realized all visible things are made of invisible elements atoms there are so many of these my days I said I was going to give you three right let me give you one about the oceans In Job 38 verse 16, we see reference to the fact that 
the oceans contain springs. Now we know that the ocean is very deep. And almost all of the ocean floor is in total darkness. Yet in the 1970s, with the help of deep diving research submarines, submarines that were only then able to withstand, they were built to withstand the, the, hundred, the thousands of pounds of pressure at that depth, they discovered that the ocean has springs in the ocean floor. What is ocean water? Where does it come from and how come it doesn't dry out? And yet, this is stated in the pages of scripture. Thousand of years before. And so we see that, you know what? The pages of scripture is actually a leader in the field of science. Same for history, and time won't permit me to go into all of the different historical challenges that have been made against the scripture. In Luke, in the early, I think it's chapter one or two, there is an individual called Quirinus that Luke, the um, scripture writer, makes mention of. Who's this guy, Quirinus? We don't have any evidence for his existence. We look through the Roman um, annals of history and so on and so forth. And they said, ah, you see, this Bible, you claim it to be the word of God. Talking about some fictitious characters. And then, some years ago, on an archaeological dig, they dig up an inscription to the leader, Quirinus. Therefore, agreeing with what is stated in scripture. And so this is what we see. Scripture leads in truth. Scripture is truth to which all things must come and bow before. Science, history, archaeology, literature, anything and everything is subject to be tested by scripture. Because scripture is God's word. And God knows what he's talking about. We see a final piece of evidence for us to consider. The testimony of the witnesses. Those who God used to write scripture. Consider this. Those who testified to the resurrection of Jesus Christ all died but one. The 12 apostles called to testify to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to proclaim the message of the gospel, they paid with their lives all but one. And the one that didn't die, he didn't die because he couldn't die because God wouldn't let him die. The apostle John was on the Isle of Patmos. And they boiled him in oil. And he wouldn't boil.
He must have come out with some tough skin after that. But he wouldn't boil. He wouldn't dead. And it was because, as Jesus had said to Peter, at the end of the gospel period, what is it to you if I keep him alive to see my coming? And who was it that received the revelation of the second coming? Some people said, oh, you know, John's still alive today, you know, because he's supposed to be alive at the second coming. Come on, fam. <laughs> Let's handle this properly. He saw the second coming. Jesus gave him the revelation of the second coming. And until he had received that, he couldn't die. All of the others paid with their lives. Now, nobody knowingly dies for a lie. Nobody knowingly dies for a lie. You say, what about suicide bombers? Well, they believe what they believe to be true. It is com completely contrary to human nature and the basic instinct of self-preservation for someone to die holding to what they know to be a lie. Do you really believe that? I'll kill you now. I've got a gun to your head. And this time you know it's a lie. And you're going to sit there and say, yeah. Their blood testifies to the truth of what they proclaimed. And so on this basis, we see the evidence and recognize that the Bible is the word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 puts it like this. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's God breathed. He breathes it out. <clears throat> All scripture is inspired by God. And is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the person of God may be complete. Thoroughly equipped for every good work. Peter put it like this. In 2 Peter 1 verse 3. Basically that God's divine power has given to us all things. That relate to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of Jesus. Who called us by glory and virtue. That knowledge is contained in the Bible. God's book, the book. And as a result, we recognize that it is the first, foremost, and final authority. Because it is God's breathed out word to mankind. We recognize that God done so with clarity. That the Bible in its original writings is without error because those words were breathed out by God. And the Bible that we have today is at least 87% consistent with the original handwriting of the prophets who wrote it down. And the other 13% has no effect or impact 
on the central meaning and teaching and essence of what is stated. It doesn't change how you understand what's stated. And even all of those 13% are known to us. So we know what we're dealing with. We recognize that the Bible is necessary, not optional. Matthew 4 verse 4. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every single word that comes from the mouth of God. We need it. We have to have it. We recognize that the Bible is sufficient. We don't need to be looking elsewhere, Apocrypha or any other writings, to be trying to find the mind, heart, and understanding of God because he has revealed himself through the scriptures. So therefore, we sit under the word. We search the word, for in it we find life. We recognize like Jesus on the road to Emmaus, as he goes through the scriptures, demonstrating to those disciples how it speaks of him, that we can find life in Christ through all the pages of scripture. Now, these things are to be central to our understanding Central to our behavior when it comes to how we approach life. Because we're not to approach life just how we reckon, based on our own understanding. Because we're accountable to the almighty God who made us. And so we need to know what he wants of us. Know what he expects of us. Know what he has planned and purposed for us. What he's provided for us. And walk in that. Yes, the Bible is God's word. Yes, we are to trust and we are to obey that which is contained in it. We recognize that only in the word of God alone do we find life. In the person of Jesus Christ. The greatest testimony to the authority of scripture is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Remember I said that Jesus is at the center of scripture. And when God raised him from the dead in Romans 1, it says that God openly endorsed Jesus as his son of the seed of David by raising him from the dead. Jesus quoted scripture more than anyone. Jesus spoke that which is scripture that scripture was explained by those appointed by him, authorized by him to do so. And that's what we now have as 66 books, being the word of God. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for giving us all things that relate to life and godliness. We thank you, Lord, for making yourself known to us because we'd be like those blindfolded guys Feeling the elephant, thinking the tails are rope and legs are tree trunks. We would have no idea of who you are. We wouldn't be able to see the wood for the trees, as they say, Lord. And yet, Lord, you have revealed yourself 
And not only have you revealed yourself, but you've revealed us to ourselves. You've shown us who we really are. You've given us the clearest, most sensible, most convincing account of creation. Where we came from. You've given us revelation of who you are. And not just who you are, but your plan of salvation. That we are all sinners. We've all sinned and fallen short. We're outside of your kingdom apart from repenting of our sins. And putting our faith in Jesus Christ who your book speaks of. But in doing so we become a part of your kingdom. Kingdom citizens. Endowed with your favor and your blessing. And Lord, I pray for any today who, having heard the testimony of your word, are now left with no excuse. Any today who are now left with no reason not to recognize your existence and get to know you in the way that you've prescribed. Pray that, Lord, you would stir on their hearts by your spirit. That you would grant them the grace, Lord, to repent. To believe. And to receive eternal life. Help us all, Lord, as citizens of your kingdom. Those of us who have put our faith in you. Submitted to your lordship. Help us, Lord, to get to grips with your word. Help us to grow and mature. Help us to be able to be assured of the basics and move on and grow unto maturity in such a way that we're able to encourage others. You've said that we are our brother's keeper. It don't matter what age we are, what our background is, how many GCSEs we've got. It's got nothing to do with that. And so help us, Lord, I pray. For your name's sake. I'm not